Hello everyone, my name is Kevin Gastola. I'm one of the hosts of the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly Podcast, and unfortunately our plans for this week's episode fell through. Also, Rania Kalik, one of our dearly beloved co-hosts of the show, she's been traveling, continent hopping, making her way to the United States in order to be with family and friends for the holidays. And so, uh, we don't really have anything for you. We weren't able to lay down a discussion and talk about news from the past week. We do have a planned year-end episode, and Katie Halper, the co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast, the Rolling Stone podcast, this new hit, amazing, wonderful podcast that was launched this past year. She's going to be our guest for our end-of-the-year show. But in the meantime, I thought about what could we give to you, something especially for the people who are loyal to us, who listen to us week to week, and maybe they don't want a whole, maybe they want to still find something from us when they go on Sunday or Monday to look for an unauthorized disclosure episode. So this is what I came up with. We started, I started a show called Dissenter Weekly. It's based on the work that I'm doing regularly at shadowproof.com on important, crucial whistleblower stories covering the United States government's attacks and efforts to destroy WikiLeaks to bring Julian Assange to trial and extradite him from the United Kingdom. It's all building up. A lot of the work that I'm doing with this show is building up towards uh, a reporting trip I'm going to be taking in February and March where I'll be in London covering the extradition hearing, this major extradition hearing that's going to take three to four weeks and uh, will be the U.S. putting its case before a British court as well as the defense hopefully and potentially successfully showing that this is all a farce and showing all aspects of this case and how it is fraught with many, many problems and how Julian Assange should not be extradited to the U.S. So I had the show and I, uh, Brian Sonnenstein, my colleague, helps me navigate through these whistleblower stories, through these developments with WikiLeaks. And uh, we, we talk about these every week because I think they're really important, but often they fly completely under the radar and do not get the attention deserved in the establishment media. Even as we hear pundits posture and act like they support whistleblowers in the age of President Donald Trump, even as we hear former and current intelligence agency officials act like they are allies or supporters of whistleblowers, even though that is completely hard to fathom based on what we know about what they do as part of the national security apparatus. So here it is. You're going to hear the episode that was just recorded on December 19th, uh, posted uh, to YouTube. Um, and this is the audio that you can listen to and just get a sense of what the show is all about. And if you like it, I encourage you to uh, tune in every week or look for the video as we post it to shadowproof.com at the end of the week. And we'll be back next week with a year-end show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dissenter Weekly Update for December 19th. I'm Brian Sonnenstein, publishing editor for shadowproof.com. I'm Kevin Costola, the managing editor for shadowproof.com. And each week, we're running down the latest news in whistleblowing and press freedom. And on today's show, we'll be discussing NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, how the government won a victory and will be able to seize the proceeds from his book. And also, we're going to talk about Assange's, Julian Assange's latest hearing in the United Kingdom. Uh, before we dive in, just wanted to really quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button below this video to stay up to date on this show. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ShadowproofCom. And remember that Shadowproof is 100% reader supported. So if you like the show, if you like what we do at Shadowproof, please go to shadowproof.com slash donate. We have some donation options, some membership options, and we'd really appreciate your support. 
Uh, Kevin, why don't you take us to our first story for this week? Yeah, and so this first story that we have for the week is coming from the Associated Press. Um, well, actually, it comes from BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed obtained uh, a whistleblower report that details how immigrant detention centers are not providing medical care to detainees. Four adults died in custody in 2017 and 2018. ICE is accused of misdiagnosing or disregarding symptoms. And so this report relied on people who are blowing the whistle on this kind of conduct that's happening within these facilities. And uh, you probably would agree that we can liken this or compare it to the way people are mistreated and abused when it comes to healthcare in prisons in the United States. And that the, the, the treatment in detention facilities for immigrants is that it's not that much different. I mean, because they also, the people running the detention facilities for immigrants, management also does not want to spend money and resources to take care of these people. They care about as much about immigrants as they do the people who are in prisons. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? Yeah, I would. Um, this story reminded me very much of things that I've read, not only about other prison systems uh, around the United States, but even in ICE detention centers going back the last few administrations. So um, what we have here is a whistleblower blowing the whistle on you know conditions that have absolutely escalated under this administration um, and should not be um, you know overlooked or dismissed because they've been ongoing, but very much our problems that have been ongoing for a while now. And, and one quick thing just to get in here as an example, they talk about um, one boy who was misdiagnosed with an ear infection and ended up having to have a part of, um, I believe the frontal lobe of his brain had to be removed because of the fact that they didn't handle the symptoms that he was showing properly. And so uh, there, there are multiple examples that you can definitely find Obviously, we've had a, 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 an uptick in the numbers of people who are rounded up and put in these facilities under President Donald Trump, and that leads to this kind of dynamic that is the subject of this whistleblower report. Thanks. Yeah, and we'll have a link to this and all the other reports um, in the description here. Um, I'm going to take us to our next story, Kevin, unless you had something else that you wanted to say there. Um, Please do. This one, uh, the headline is Judge Backs Prison Psychiatrist Whistleblower Who Faced Retaliation. A federal judge in Sacramento validated claims by Dr. Michael Golding, who is the state prison system's chief psychiatrist, as the Sacramento Bee reported. Golding compiled a secret whistleblower report that accused California of providing false and misleading data on psychiatric care. Um, can you talk about this a bit, Kev? Yeah, and I've actually kind of been following this, this was a, a, a long ordeal where uh, basically this person, this whistleblower brought attention to the way in which the system was not providing for these prisoners. Um, and then uh, the government in California was, was going above and beyond to make this employee, this uh, chief psychiatrist miserable. And we've seen, you know, as this typically happens with whistleblower cases that because you're challenging the system, because you're taking a line that they do not agree with, that then what ends up happening is that you're made miserable. You're you're the one that they're trying to force out so they no longer have to deal with your work. But he, he compiled this report on psychiatric care in the California system, and you have basically the judge is validating it um, and uh, didn't agree that the uh, government had deliberately lied, but did say that they put misleading data in and had been using inappropriate data to deal with this kind of treatment for prisoners. And so uh, he needed to be taken seriously. So I, that's important. You know, even if uh, the judge doesn't validate that they're doing this with, um, malicious motives for, you know, I, this matters that she says that what he's saying is truthful. And so that makes it so there's actually a way that the court can enforce uh, that they need to protect him and not retaliate. That gives him protection is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think they also mentioned that CDCR tried to say, uh, and CDCR is the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation, um, tried to portray Golding as sort of a disgruntled employee, as someone who is sort of just out to sling mud and um, disparage the department. Uh, and the judge very astutely noted that that had nothing to do with sort of the efficacy of the claims that he was making and the knowledge that he brought to the table. This fits very well with sort of a pattern and practice at CDCR going back, you know, decades, pretty much their entire career. California is under, uh, the prison system is under several court orders outside of just this one. And in almost every case, uh, you know, they've engaged in this kind of manipulative behavior. Um, they've sought to retaliate against whistleblowers, including those who are incarcerated, not just ones who work in the system. Um, and so, you know, definitely a story to watch and something that, you know, it, it falls very much in line. Um, it isn't is believable for that for that matter um, with the conduct of the California Department of Corrections. And just quickly, what's amusing to me is that they mention um, in the Sacramento Bee's coverage that, like you, you said, difficult employee. Other terms were uh, pro psychiatry bias. <laughs> yes, which is, uh, which is something to chuckle at, definitely because. It's his job. He's supposed to care about the health of the people that he's treating. So yeah, he's biased. Um, that's why you hired him. You didn't hire him to not provide treatment. But I mean, somehow, often that's how it works in the system. We understand that a lot of these people who are uh, oftentimes they're doctors or psychiatrists who can't get jobs elsewhere, so they work in prisons, right? Like, so you know, yeah, they're easily. Um, pushed into a position where they just don't do medical care. And they also said just about disagrees with everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, because you're trying to not take care of mental health care and he doesn't agree with that. That's the way that the prison system should be run. Right. Um, how about our next story, Kev? Yeah. So we've got this one on uh, uh, the censorship system. Uh, the public review publication review board, a federal judge ruled that the United States government may confiscate proceeds NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden earned from the publication of his book, Permanent Record, as well as speeches that he's been giving. What we can say about this is that uh, the, the judge upheld uh, secrecy agreements and, and helped the government further solidify secrecy agreements as something that if you violate, it's a strict liability offense. Uh, so we know that Edward Snowden is facing still an Espionage Act prosecution. And if we go from that, we within this, the government brought this case against him uh, and the publisher was named, but they weren't trying to go after and punish the publisher because of our First Amendment. But what they did say is that Snowden violated his secrecy agreements that he signed with the CIA and the NSA, uh, that he's been displaying slides also when he gives his talks at colleges and universities, or when he goes um, and speaks at tech conferences. And he's using slides that even if the information wasn't disclosed from him, even if it's already public material about the way the NSA or the government engages in mass surveillance, uh, that he needed to clear those remarks with the publication review board before he gave those. And since he didn't submit any of his speeches or he didn't submit the book to the publication review board at the CIA um, or at the NSA, that he uh, has to give up any income from these. And so um, now they can go about trying to seize this money if they want to. Um, and then also quickly, what I'll add is this goes all the way back to the 1970s with a case um, involving Victor Marchetti, who was someone who had um, written a book uh, and been part of the CIA, wrote a book about the cult of intelligence. That's how he described the CIA. And obviously they didn't like that. And you look back to the 1970s when you had the church committee and the Pike committee, and they were investigating CIA abuses and how the CIA was spying and going after anti-war or left-wing activists. And so they were really upset that there were so many employees who were taking issue with that, as well as their policies around the war in Vietnam and abroad, um, and, and also involving um, assassination attempts against political leaders. And so 
they needed to do something and they they sued and eventually the court uh, came up with this publication review process and they've had this. Um, and the thing that's also worth noting is that uh, it's tremendously political in the way that it works. Uh, if you go read this article I wrote, US censorship system claims victory against NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. You can see more, but in it, I spoke with uh, CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou about what he has gone through to get his books published. Um, he's written three books, um, and the first one was completely tied up in hell because of who was the president, uh, George W. Bush. And he learned that um, if, if he just waited until Barack Obama was elected and came into office, uh, or until that incoming administration came into office, because at the time, you know, it took him many, many months and his book was still tied up. So if Obama just came into office, there'd be a new uh, set of people running the bureaucracy, essentially. And so now it would be cleared because they didn't have the same um, interests as the Bush administration in, in concealing what he was talking about in his book. And that's what happens. And, and Jose Rodriguez, who's a pro-torture, pro-waterboarding guy, uh, from the CIA, who run the National Clandestine Service, uh, is implicated in the destruction of torture tapes. Uh, he was able to write his memoir without much scrutiny from the CIA and was able to release it. And, uh, and he didn't have to go through what people uh, like Ali Soufan had to go, to go through, who was actually not even an, a CIA employee, but worked for the FBI and submitted as a courtesy, because he had been involved in doing interrogations of terrorism detainees, submitted as a courtesy to the CIA. And they ended up trying to censor uh, public testimony that was given before uh, a Senate committee during public hearings. And so this is just extraordinary. And what happens is how the censorship system works. And they're trying to exact the same control over what Edward Snowden wrote in his book. And I, I wouldn't just say this is an issue of whether somebody leaked or not. What we're talking about is it's an issue of an agency still trying to control information that it no longer controls and doing it in a way that infringes upon the free speech rights of people who work for national security agencies because Edward Snowden isn't just being told that he can't talk about classified information. He's also being told he can't comment on what has become widespread political consensus that there were mass surveillance abuses by the National Security Agency. Yeah, thank you so much for all of that. It, it really is a great article. Um, I'm resisting the temptation to pull out some other sort of morsels of it so that folks still have some uh, parts to surprise themselves when they read it, but lots of really good information in there and we'll have a link in the description. I encourage folks to read that. Um, I'm gonna take us to our next story here how the Australian government censored NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake. In October, the head of Australian Cybersecurity Center unilaterally directed and pressured the CyberCon conference to drop NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake and an academic research professor from the event. Drake wrote at Common Dreams, quote, I viewed the extraordinary pressure to block me as an already accepted speaker a week before the start of a high visibility public interest conference on cybersecurity as the most alarming and Orwellian development and a distinct form of brazen censorship for the express purpose of outright silencing me. Talk to us about this one, Kevin. There's not a lot of time that I wanted to spend on it. For the most part, I wanted to flag it as an original piece that NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake wrote for uh, Common Dreams that ended up being published there. And uh, he was one of four whistleblowers that blew the whistle on um, uh, what's typically referred to as a private contractor boondoggle. Um, and involved a trailblazer and a thin thread and this, this, this bureaucratic tussle um, between people and, and people and the profit motive over you know, which system they were going to go with for surveillance. And one could potentially protect constitutional rights and the other would quite clearly violate those rights. And so that's what Thomas Drake blew the whistle on. Um, and he's been prominently, he's been well known, but he was prosecuted or pursued under the Espionage Act for retaining a classified document. Um, and that case eventually collapsed. And uh, this happened all under President Barack Obama. And so he has a good story to tell. Uh, he's a whistleblower that Edward Snowden looked up to. 
um, gave him some inspiration to come forward as a whistleblower in 2013. And so Tom Drake was scheduled to be at this conference, the cybersecurity conference in Australia. And it points to something that, you know, I, I, they're one of the five eyes. They're one of the countries that are part of this grouping of, of these Western countries that have access to all of this data being swept up from the mass surveillance programs that were exposed by Edward Snowden. Uh, Australia is clamping down on press freedom. They're tightening their grip. Uh, they're waging their own war on whistleblowers. It sounds like very similar to how whistleblowers have been treated, how leaks have been handled and clamped down upon in the past five to 10 years here in the United States. This is something to note and pay attention to uh, as we talk about these stories week to week. Um, let's turn to our next story here, which is one that we've been uh, following in the last couple episodes or, or at least once before on the show. Uh, we've been following what's been going on with the documents that WikiLeaks has been publishing. And uh, they've been releasing information related to the alleged chemical attack that happened in Doma in Syria in April 2018. And what they were able to do is obtain documents, including a memo that reflects how 20 inspectors were concerned about the final report that was released by this fact-finding mission. And people involved say that it does not reflect the views of all of the team members. Uh, the first draft of the interim report from June 2018 was one of the documents that WikiLeaks published, and it shows what was altered or suppressed in the investigation. I want to point out an article that uh, Caitlin Johnstone wrote. That uh, she's um, independent journalist. Most of her stuff appears over at Medium, but she did a full and thorough accounting. It's headlined "Deluge of New Leaks Further Shreds the Establishment Syria Narrative," and she went through and did uh, a point-by-point -point analysis of some of the the things that were in the report that matter. I mean, the thing that I took away from looking at this report, the first interim report, and comparing it to the one that we all read publicly was that the initial report that was drafted uh, did not draw concrete conclusions. It left open doubt. The people involved in working on this uh, weren't certain that it was a chlorine-containing choking or blood agent that had caused what we saw on video. Um, they weren't sure that some of the videos that we saw weren't staged. Um, they suggested that they had trouble finding uh, casualties in the video, that, that uh, some of the people uh, changed positions in the video, suggesting that there were, uh, you know, we don't know who, so that, that maybe we weren't getting an organic uh, depiction of what had transpired in this attack, that, that there were things that they went back and, and retroactively uh, shot in order to make it seem more dramatic. Um, you know, it, the, some of the chemicals are likened to being similar to like household bleach. Um, there's questions about cylinders and, and um, all kinds of stuff that were raised, questions that were raised in the initial report that don't make it to the final report. And I can also say, from looking at it, that one thing I took away was if uh, if it made the Syrian government look too good, then uh, it, it's almost like in the final report, they went back and rewrote it so that it didn't make people think they were giving the Syrian government credit for handling the aftermath of this alleged attack appropriately. So it makes it sound like there may be uh, it leaves open the possibility that they might be involved in some kind of a cover-up when, in fact, they're really able to get into and uh, and look. And, and it also says, this is quite stunning to me, it says that they were going to exhume bodies and do an analysis of people who died from this alleged attack to see uh, what they could find, uh, the kind of chemical compounds they might have found. But at some point, the team was afraid that the findings weren't going to confirm their theory that they were pushing for the attack as to what was responsible. And because it was going to uh, undermine that, they decided to not go ahead with exhuming the bodies. 
Thank you for that. We will definitely keep an eye on this story and continue to report on it. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add, um, you know, we're talking about the content in there, but it also, again, points to how even as uh, the founder of this organization, WikiLeaks, has been jailed, even as uh, there's still a, a mass investigation into what this uh, organization does, they continue to put out material that shows the value of what they're able to do. Um, and they still have credibility, and uh, only they are really pushing this. We've got a complete and total blackout, it would seem, from most US, if not Western media organizations when it comes to taking in this new information and reassessing a narrative. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, on that note, why don't we talk about um, what's going on with Assange right now? We have another uh, request, another letter from uh, a coalition of doctors on behalf of his health. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And we've seen this. We've seen the uh, doctors coming together from different parts of the world. And this one focuses on the fact that he was a he, he is a citizen of Australia. And so uh, this is pressuring the prime minister, Scott Morrison, to exercise responsibility and intervene and say, we should have Assange back. He should be back here at home and uh, he should no longer be going through this psychological torture. His health is deteriorating. It's visible. Uh, we're going to get to the latest proceeding that happened in his extradition case. And again, every time people see him, whether it's by video link to respond to questions or the, the, the very few times that he's been brought from the jail uh, to the courtroom and been there physically and inside the courtroom, it's evident how much his health has deteriorated and what is happening to him. It's like there's a kind of slow death going on. Uh, and I, I'll sort of offer us a way to segue into the like, one of the last stories we're going to do here, which is talking about the hearing that took place by saying that there's a potential here for a slow death to truly be unfolding before our very own eyes, before the whole world, because if he loses in this court, in this magistrate court, then there's a appeals court that he can go to. And then there's a high court that he can go to. And there's also a European court of human rights that they can go before to challenge the extradition. And then if they lose it there, they would have no other ability to uh, push forward and keep, uh, uh, they, they'd have to let the U.S. have him and he would actually be brought to the United States. But that could take five years. That could be, uh, that could be an amazing amount of time, an incredible amount of time for Julian Assange when we're thinking about his health. And uh, you know, if, if, if he's no longer able to function uh, cognitively, if he's uh, losing his faculties, um, if he's, his dental health is getting very bad, if he's having trouble mo mobility, um, if he's struggle, struggling with other ailments that he develops from just being imprisoned, uh, and he's been in prison for uh, eight months at least now, and if the, as that starts to take its toll even further and compounded on the number of years that he was isolated in the Ecuadorian embassy, this is a huge issue, and I think why his lawyers recognize the urgency. And so we'll get into, um, thank you for putting that up there on the screen, uh, that the hearing, the procedural hearing that took place on December 19th uh, was a hearing where his defense attorneys previewed the kind of case that they intend to put on in a hearing that we now know is going to take more than four to five days. It's going to take possibly three to four weeks. Um, and in some ways, that's a good thing for the defense because the defense says they're going to be able to expose the way in which the U.S. government is going after Julian Assange. And so uh, they're ready uh, and they're going to argue that the treaty between the United States and the United Kingdom, in fact, does not cover what Julian Assange is accused of. He's accused of a political offense, which is a violation under the Espionage Act. And the treaty does not recognize political offenses. And so uh, this, this offense 
under the Espionage Act, this was this was how uh, Ecuador went ahead and granted asylum to Julian Assange uh, back in 2012. So he was able to get asylum. He convinced Ecuador that it was a political offense that he would likely be charged with committing. And so it hasn't changed. It's still the same that it's very subjective what an espionage act offense could be. And it changes from country to country. So it's political. It's not universally recognized is what they're basically saying. And they're making that argument to say that he should not be extradited. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see going forward here, what, uh, you know, what may happen, uh, how effective this might be. They also have the privacy violations that were committed against him by this company, this private security company in Spain called UC Global. And it's gotten minimal attention in the U.S. press, but El Pais in Spain has covered it quite well. And he, in fact, is going to be deposed at a magistrate court on December 20th. And he's going to be brought from the jail to the court in London to give testimony in a closed session. And that's going to be used um, in a case where you know they've sued this company. And David Morales, who was um, involved in this company, was arrested for violations uh, for, for allegedly violating committing crimes. And they're going to be able to push this case in the court in Spain. And that evidence in that case, the, the targeting of not just Assange, but also his legal team targeting people who were visiting him that were journalists, targeting people who uh, were activists and other family and friends who may have visited him. That, th that is going to be part of the case that the defense puts forward when they challenge uh, the government's claims. Um, there are tens of thousands of documents. There are a ton, there's a ton of evidence to get through. Uh, the defense attorneys are swimming in evidence. Um, you've got tons of case that, it's very similar to what happened with the Chelsea Manning case where there was just such a huge body of evidence and it contributed to, a, a, I think, might've set a record for one of the biggest case records that the, the military court had ever seen. There's just so much to go through. And so you're going to need all of that time for three to four weeks. And I suppose that brings us to like us because we're going to be covering that at Shadowproof and I'm going to be going over there to London to cover. And it's going to basically be like going back to the days of covering the Chelsea Manning trial during 2013 when I lived in Washington, D.C., with our with our with our, our dearly beloved uh, editor in chief Jane Hampshire of Fire Dog Lake, Brian Smiling, because you know he was there. We we were in the trenches wow. doing this kind of work, and uh, and back then I, I lived in D.C. for uh, over two months covering uh, what was happening at Fort Meade in this trial, and uh, did a, a lot of work. Uh, learned a whole lot from doing that kind of reporting. And now I'll have the opportunity in London, it's, it seems to not just be there for uh, three or four days, but uh, to be there for three or four weeks. Yeah. And I just wanted to, to rewind a little bit and underscore, you know, what you were saying about the slow death. It, it certainly does not appear uh, that, that the government is at all interested in having uh, a fair trial for Julian, um, you know, the the medical issues that he's suffering from, particularly the dental issues, could be solved if he had, uh, you know, real access to a dentist. Um, he's suffering from depression. Uh, there's evidence of psychological torture, as described in the, the doctor letter that um, you point to. And it, there was a, uh, a case management hearing recently in which um, Assange struggled to recall his own name and his age. And I think it's important to note that you know, not only is it a question of whether or not he's going to survive until or throughout his full trial, um, but it's also undermining his defense in the sense that he's not, you know, clearly if he's in this state, his ability to participate in his defense, which is crucial for any prisoner, not just Julian Assange, uh, is severely inhibited. 
Um, and so I would just want to question on its face for folks who are listening, whether or not uh, any of the governments involved are interested either in him making it to trial or him actually participating in it in a meaningful way. Um, I it would seem that if things continue at this pace, his competency in the courtroom uh, will be severely inhibited. So I just wanted to underscore that point because his health is a is a very crucial part of the trial. It's not an additional aspect to it or or some sort of drama on the outside. Um, it's very very much connected to his ability to defend himself. That's a crucial point, Brian. And, and I would ask people to reflect on what has unfolded in 2019. Uh, this is gonna be our last show of the year, and then we will return and we'll have a show with a special guest to kick off 2020. And I'd ask people to look back on 2019 and all that's unfolded. Uh, we've had uh, a couple new leak cases brought against individuals under the Espionage Act, and we've had the most prominent development with Julian Assange being expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy and actually charged with 17 alleged violations of the Espionage Act for journalism that does not have anything to do with what the WikiLeaks organization has done in the last two to three years, but goes back to the most formidable and award-winning and the kind of work that gave them the notoriety of a media organization that could break uh, incredible news stories and reveal uh, corruption of, of the highest kind, uh, of, of the sort of war crimes committed by the United States government, crimes against humanity, you could say, um, diplomatic misconduct, uh, spying by diplomats on people at the United Nations, uh, and, and you know that also includes covering up drone warfare as well. Uh, and I would ask people to think about what they've read in the media here in the U.S. and also what they've heard people who are engaged in political discussions here, people who are in liberal circles, people who are in progressive and maybe more left-wing circles, what you've heard about Assange, and to take note of this reluctance to show solidarity with what he's going for. We've heard this. One of the things I got was that um, showing solidarity with Julian Assange would perhaps give support to people who are in the far right because Julian Assange became an ally during President Donald Trump's campaign, became an ally of the far right, or he's dabbled with the far right. And I just don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense because if he's an ally for the far right, I would challenge people to find me the advocacy campaigns by these groups to try and force Donald Trump to drop charges against him. And they don't exist. They're not out there. And, they're, and people aren't mobilizing for Julian Assange's freedom on the far right. So I don't think that he really is somebody who's their ally if they're not going to stand with him. Um, he doesn't really have anybody all along the political spectrum to support him. Um, that that speaks to the kind of work that WikiLeaks has engaged in. It makes enemies of everyone across the political spectrum. It upset people because they published emails that actually showed us and confirmed how the DNC was rigging the Democratic Party primary against Bernie Sanders so that Hillary Clinton would have an easier time securing and being anointed as the Democratic Party's nominee in 2016. But then you go back to 2010 and you see the exposure of what was going on with the military, what was going on with the State Department under Barack Obama, uh, but then also pointing out uh, aspects of the Afghanistan war and Iraq wars that were started by the Bush administration, bringing attention to torture, uh, Guantanamo, uh, the Guantanamo files that showed the the false, the fabricated intelligence, these cases um, for bringing detainees there and holding hundreds of people in there in this military prison in Cuba. And, and you, you consider all of that. And, and what you see is that Julian Assange 
um, has found himself in this predicament where there's really nobody except for his most immediate circle who have supported him. There's there's a few journalists. Um, you can go read In Defense of Julian Assange's book that was put out by OR Books, where there are um, multiple people around the world, advocates, and some writers who contributed pieces to this book in order to articulate what is at stake here in this case. And I usually don't like the qualifier of regardless of whether you like Julian Assange or not, um, and then you continue and you talk about it. I just think that that gives quarter to people who have engaged in character assassination that is largely misplaced. But let's say it for the close here, because maybe that's where you are. So regardless of what you think of Julian Assange, it really doesn't matter. Because if Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, and this is my message to the establishment media, if he's extradited to the United States, um, it really doesn't matter what his politics are. It really doesn't matter if he's an ally of the far left or the far right, or if he's, you know, uh, whatever he's done. Or if they think he, he's a journalist. Yeah, <laughs> he might even be, um, a, a, as they've uh, engaged in false smears successfully to prevent Jeremy Corbyn from successfully challenging Boris Johnson, you may even say he's anti-Semitic. Um, you know, you may even say that at one point he denied the reality of the Holocaust, even though there's no basis for any of that. I'm sure that kind of crap is out there about Julian Assange, but it doesn't matter. None of that stuff on a personal level matters at all, because if they succeed in bringing him to the United States and they put him in trial for this, then there's going to be a whole set of things in motion that make it harder for journalists to engage in national security journalism that gives the U.S. government much more power to suppress journalism. And I think that's why, you know, we're going a little bit longer here on this show than we've done in the past three or four weeks, because it's important um, in this last show of the year um, that we articulate what is truly at stake. I mean, Julian Assange, if he is put on trial under the Espionage Act, he's going to face the same circumstances that Edward Snowden would, uh, that Chelsea Manning faced, and you can't put on a whistleblower defense. So that also means he can't put on a journalist defense. So in the courtroom, in, the, in a U.S. federal court, he can't give people any background for why he published material at WikiLeaks, even though he's not a whistleblower, he's a journalist. But he can't even give, this means that a journalist can't, justify publishing and that's protected under the first amendment but by prosecuting him under the espionage act it's like they don't have to even allow for the first amendment to give him that protection to speak openly you can now run it through the espionage act and he doesn't get to say in his defense why the afghanistan war logs were published to expose how the government was uh, engaged in sending around assassination and assassination squads to conduct night raids against people to engage in torture, to you know, engage in executions, summary executions of, uh, of Afghan civilians, women and children as well. Examples where it went completely out of control and that kind of behavior, there should be accountability or repercussions, but there's none except for the fact that an organization named WikiLeaks published this information that Chelsea Manning saw and decided need to see the light of day. And so, you know, we all got access to that information. So that's, that's what's at stake is that you have this precedent of a case where a journalist was put on trial and wasn't able to defend what they published. And then if he's found guilty for what he did for engaging in a conspiracy to engage in journalism, then that's the precedent that they have. Um, and, and that'll, you know, you hear the siren from the, my, my not confined space here, but the sirens will be going off if they successfully get a kind of verdict against Julian Assange. And all the press freedom organizations will be panicking and all of the people who are involved in protecting First Amendment rights, advocating for First Amendment rights, um, and everyone who's involved in 
the general counsels of major media organizations, they'll absolutely be concerned. Uh, and by then, maybe they'll have to reflect on why nobody decided to support Julian Assange. And you can go back to pieces like what Bill Keller wrote about him having stinky, smelly socks and looking like a bag lady back in 2010. And that those were the initial building blocks for not taking this person seriously and allowing the U.S. government to put together an investigation that could destroy a media organization. So as we as we end, we always try to give an account of where people are at. Right now we have Chelsea Manning, who just celebrated her 32nd birthday from a jail cell. And we say happy birthday, uh, but we also are upset because it's right. 281 days that Chelsea Manning has been in jail. $172,000 is what she now owes. And uh, perhaps the government never gets her to pay any of that money. Uh, they could hound her with collection agencies. And maybe when this is all over, they never get that kind of money. Uh, but they think they're entitled to that money. And they think that Chelsea Manning can just call upon her supporters and get that kind of money. Um, and all along this year, there was never assessment of what kind of finances she had and whether she had the ability to pay that kind of money. They just presumed that she's a, you know, quote unquote, celebrity whistleblower who can uh, write books and perform in movies and or be in documentaries and go out and do speaking engagements and just make so much. It's, they think it's a lucrative gig to go around and be a truth teller in the United States. And uh, so because of that, they pushed forward with this $1,000 a day fine that she's owed. Uh, it was 500 for the first 30 days, and then it doubled. And um, this is what she faces until 18 months elapse. And uh, as if she, as I expect her to do, uh, continues this resistance to 18 months, then she can be freed. And then they can impanel the grand jury again. And then she can be sent back to the Alexandria detention center and uh, kept there uh, and kept there as this uh, extradition proceeding unfolds against Assange and kept there as uh, he is maybe in the future brought to the United States. Uh, and what they're doing is they're consciously trying to divide and make it impossible for a source to show support for the organization that published her work. Uh, and her voice would be tremendous, right, for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks if she was able to speak up. But she has her own concerns to worry about because she's in a jail. And I think it's deliberate to keep it that way. As we said, Assange is in jail for eight months. He completed a sentence for violating bail conditions. We have two other cases. We have Reality Winner, an uh, NSA contractor who has been serving a sentence. Um, and we also have Terry Albury, who is an FBI whistleblower who is serving a sentence. Uh, and then upcoming next year, we have an alleged drone whistleblower named Daniel Hale, who is likely to go on trial for releasing documents to the Intercept, allegedly, that revealed uh, the, the assassination program that the Obama administration was carrying out, which involved drones, but also went beyond that. Um, it was about the processes they developed in order to target and assassinate uh, terrorism suspects um, extraditionally. So... That concludes. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add, but I want to tell people who have joined us for these first few shows that we really appreciate you giving us a chance, yeah. um, uh, considering what we're doing. Um, and uh, typically our show, shows are about 30 minutes. I suppose we're squeezing in a few, like 10 or extra 15 minutes, uh, just because uh, we're going to be off for the next week around the holiday. Um, but then we'll be back the following week on uh, on that Thursday. Uh, this typically airs at 4 p.m. Eastern. And, uh, and then we'll be there with a special guest. And we'll dig into the stories that are breaking as we uh, begin the year 2020. And uh, so, again, thank you for giving us a chance. I really, I really must emphasize, thank you for those of you out there who believe that this could be something worth watching on a regular basis. It gives us a lot of hope that we can experiment and eventually get this working in a way um, that can reach a lot of people. And we can give a lot of attention to whistleblower stories that matter 
And uh, yes, you may have noticed we did not talk about the Ukraine call whistleblower, even though I suppose the Ukraine call whistleblower could take credit for the House impeaching President Donald Trump. But that got a lot of attention in the mass media. And we're particularly interested in stories that are flying under the radar that aren't getting coverage, which is deserved. And that's what you're going to hear week to week. Because uh, if the media really does care about whistleblowers, we're trying to say, these are the stories you should be following. And uh, you could talk about this, or you could gossip about Donald Trump's tweets. But we really think that this is what matters. So could you talk about these whistleblower stories too? That's right. I mean, for all of the talk from throughout this entire term of the, you know, the potential slide towards authoritarianism in this administration, that this particular issue is virtually left with met with silence among the United States press is unconscionable. Um, mm -hmm. I really appreciate what you said. Um, and with that, you know, I, I just want to echo those thanks that that Kevin said. It really does mean a lot to us. Um, we're looking forward to continue doing the show in 2020. We'll be publishing a few more things for the rest of the year of 2019. Um, but we hope that everyone who's watching out there uh, has a nice end of the year. Um, once again, you can keep up with the show by hitting the subscribe button. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, check out shadowproof.com. We'll have links to all of these uh, stories there. Um, and again, if you support our work, uh, you know, Shadowproof is 100% reader supported um, and we could really use your help, even if it's just a couple dollars uh, one time, even if it's just a couple dollars as uh, a patron giving monthly, um, we'd be happy to have you and your support makes a big difference helping us pay uh, our freelancers and keep the lights on. So uh, with that, uh, thank you very much and we will see you in 2020. If you've been enjoying the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly Podcast this year, I highly encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure and become a patron. Like we said in the top of the episode, we've got a planned year-end show with co-host of Rolling Stone's Useful Idiots podcast, Katie Halper. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, we're also going to be looking back on news and events from the past year and then looking ahead to 2020 and all the madness that lies ahead for us and uh, hopefully for the people who rule us, the owners of this country. So it's going to be a good time to laugh, mock, and also uh, get real and uh, talk about our predictions and, and, and get into a lot of issues like we do week to week here at the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. So uh, if you want that show, if you want early access to that show, you can go to Unauthorized Disclosure's Patreon page at patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure. We'll be back next week with our end of year show.